This week on Life and Faith. It's like looking at yourself in the mirror. You do it every day when you brush your teeth, probably, or comb your hair, or get dressed. You like see yourself, but you don't always pay attention to what you're looking at. And I think taking kind of a very good, deep look in the mirror and seeing like, okay, I am like this. We don't know what's going to make for security 30 years from now. One essay we had to pick a conflict anywhere in the world, Israel, Palestine, whatever you like. I chose my husband's family. Suddenly your drives are selfless instead of selfish. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, pretty much everybody loves a personality test, don't they? They give us a chance to think about one of our favourite topics, ourselves. And also, at their best, they help us to relate to other people better by showing us what makes us and them tick. Now, you may have heard people say things like, I'm a four, I'm a seven. Oh, that's because they're a five. Now, if you're not familiar with the Enneagram, it's like they're speaking in code. Well, today on Life and Faith, we're going to hear a bit about what the Enneagram is, what it's for, and what impact it might have on our sense of ourselves and how we function in the world. We'll hear from Sandra Van Opstel. She's an eight on the Enneagram, and she's written one in a series of books from the publisher IVP, which takes you through 40 days of reflections on being a whatever number you are. First, though, I did the Enneagram once years ago, so I know what number I am, but the rest of the team were blissfully ignorant here. So Justine Toe and Natasha Moore, and also our producer, Alan Douthwaite, agreed to do the test. Here's what happened. I strive for perfection. (gasps) I don't understand. No, no, seriously. (laughs) Is perfect, in this case, objectively perfect or what I consider perfect? You're not meant to overthink it. But this is why it drives me nuts. So if you call yourself a perfectionist, then this is what it's referring to, right? And we're only on the first statement. (laughs) No, I know. I know. (laughs) But what about how in some areas of life, yes, I'm quite Mm, finicky. In other mm. areas, I'm like, I can't You've got to vibe it. This is why I'm just going to have to write neutral. (laughs) Really? Neutral? But sorry, you should, you do you. (laughs) My friends here are doing a test from truity.com where you respond to 100 statements about yourself, ranking them from inaccurate to accurate with neutral in the middle. And as you can see, this was going to take them a while. I am responsible and reliable. Yes, I am boring. Accurate. (laughs) I'm ticking all the boring boxes. (laughs) It's actually a really good thing. Mm, Says our colleague who appreciates it when we are responsible and reliable. No, that's right. And who is himself very responsible and reliable. There are various theories around about where the Enneagram comes from, but a lot of people think its roots are very old going back to Christian or Islamic mysticism, the Jewish Kabbalah, classical Greek philosophy, or even ancient Babylon. I do not hesitate to call people out when they are behaving badly. This is obviously the statement they trot out to try and test the people pleaser. Mm. Mm. So Mm. basically, as a people pleaser, (laughs) I will not call people out. Or the person who doesn't like conflict. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Which is me. The modern Enneagram system was introduced by a Russian philosopher and mystic in the 1930s and then popularised by a Bolivian philosopher and a Chilean psychiatrist. It was introduced to the US in the 1960s and became popular particularly in religious and spiritual communities. Today there tends to be much more of a focus on the psychological rather than the religious side of the Enneagram. 
but it gets used in everything from corporate training to spiritual direction. I am prepared for any disaster. <laughs> no, well, Al no. Is. no, 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 Al is. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure that I am. What are you putting? I think I can handle any disaster, but I'm not necessarily prepared for it. Well, that's the same thing. Yeah, it is. Oh, you okay. are equipped. Oh. Yeah. Like, you who know, would survive again. the apocalypse out of the people in this room? <laughs> Al, basically. 100%. Are you saying I'm a cockroach? No, no. I'm saying that you are ready <laughs> and able and you know, prepper. You're getting there. You're going to get it you done. skills. The Enneagram describes nine personality types and maps them onto a nine-pointed diagram, which looks a bit like a circle with some triangles in it, and explains how the types relate to one another. The types are often given titles. Type 1 is the perfectionist or the reformer. Type 2 is the giver. You have the achiever, the individualist, also called the artist, and a lot of artists are type 4s, apparently. The investigator, the skeptic, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. I tell people what I think, even if it is hard to hear. Mm. Inaccurate, no, no, sorry. In- inaccurate for me. Oh, I put accurate, but oh. is that true? Yeah. <laughs> That's you why sure. your approval really matters, Natasha, because <laughs> I know it's not BS. <laughs> oh, thanks, I think. According to the Enneagram, each of the nine personality types is defined by a particular core belief about how the world works. Now, that belief then drives your deepest motivations and fears. So when people act or react in ways that seem inconsistent or strange to you, the Enneagram is there to help you understand where that behavior is coming from and why it makes sense according to their view of the world. Trying new things keeps life interesting. I went neutral. I had a facial last week. That was a new thing. I haven't really had a facial before. And did it keep life interesting? It kept life interesting when I heard the bill at the end of the session. And I'm like, I won't be doing that again. I'm poor. (laughs) I am an upbeat person. You're an upbeat person. I'm an upbeat person. You're an upbeat person. I don't know. Sometimes I am and sometimes (laughs) I'm I'm not. (laughs) Well, not dark, but a little bit like, you know, humdrum. (laughs) (laughs) Dean, that is never a word I would associate with you. (laughs) The Enneagram is designed to help you understand things like how do you react to stress? How do you manage your emotions? Do you respond to situations with analysis with your head or with your gut by instinct? Understanding this stuff can help you change the way you react to things. Other people have stronger opinions than I do. Inaccurate. (laughs) Wildly inaccurate. (laughs) Nobody has stronger opinions than me. This fun Monday morning activity. (laughs) We should always do a fun Monday morning activity. Now we're going to discuss Justine and Natasha and Al's results a little later. But first, here's Sandra Van Opstel. Natasha brings you this interview. I am a neighbor, a parent, a daughter, um, an activist, an author, pastor. Everything from school pickups and school lunches to uh, trying to help institutions be more equitable in the way that they operate across cultures. That's what I spend my time doing. Sandra is the executive director of an organization called Chasing Justice, And she's the author of 40 Days on Being an Eight. The Enneagram, I think, is, um, I like to talk about it like it's a mirror. Um, It's a mirror that shows you your whole self. And it is a tool in which you can kind of look at how you operate in the world, how you understand the world, and a tool relationally as well to help you understand how you interact with others. What's your experience of it? How did you first encounter the Enneagram? 
So for me, I've um, always been in leadership and I am a bit of a challenger as my Enneagram type says. So I encountered it through actually some mistakes I think that I was making as a challenger, you know, um, trying to to speak truth to power, to order the world in a way that I thought in, my, in the organizations that I worked in, in the way I thought it should be. So I was raising my voice everywhere I was going and I was meeting with a spiritual director who's basically like a, a coach, you know, and she was helping me understand that even though I had spent all of my 20s being applauded for my ability to speak the thing that nobody else in the room will say, that I was maybe utilizing that tool so much that I was getting myself into a bit of trouble. So um, so she invited me to discover the Enneagram to listen to and pay attention to what was motivating me and what was good about that and what was maybe, um, as she would say, the dark side of that. So you're an eight a challenger, you say? What is that? I am. So I'm an Enneagram 8, uh, which is known in some descriptions as a challenger. Um, it's also known as the need to be against because in some descriptions, they categorize each of the nine types as some kind of need. And so the need to be against or to protect. So these are folks that are going to pay attention to where power is operating in an institution or in a room or relationally and are going to know when power is being abused and so if there is injustice, if there is abuse of power, if there are people that are being kind of pushed to the side or silenced, um, eights typically pick up on those dynamics in relationships and in structures and then seek to address the injustice that is there. So what difference has it made to you to know that, to be given that description and number? Like I said earlier, I think it's it's more of a mirror. It's like, oh, yes, I see that. It's like looking at yourself in the mirror. You do it every day when you brush your teeth, probably, or, you know, comb your hair or get dressed. You like see yourself, but you don't always pay attention to what you're looking at. And I think taking kind of a very good, deep look in the mirror and seeing like, OK, I am like this, you know. So, for example, my husband was telling me the other day that when our son was born, he said, oh, he has that bump on his ear that you have. And I was like, what bump on my ear? And he was like, you know, that little bump that you have on your ear, that little bump. And I was like, I don't have a bump on my ear. Um, and then he showed me the cartilage on my son's ear had like a little bump on it. And he says, your dad also has the same bump. I was like, mm -hmm. my father has the same bump on his ear. So here I was looking at myself for, you know, almost 40 years in the mirror and had never noticed that one of my ears had like a little cartilage on it. I thought that was normal. Everybody had that, but apparently it's not normal. So so that would be an example, I think, of seeing yourself, like having an idea. Like I always grew up, I would, I had a sense of right and wrong. My mom would call me um, a judge in Spanish. The word is juez, like to judge. And so she would say, you're you know, here you are operating as a judge in this case, like who's right, who's wrong, was that fair, who was given the bigger piece of pie, like did that person share their toys, kind of like that sense of rightness and wrongness in, in a space and, and to make sure people were not taken advantage of. I remember really, really early on, um, like I probably was seven or eight years old, I had identified that all of the dolls that I owned were light-skinned, blonde, blue-eyed dolls. Barbie specifically made by Mattel. And so I wrote a letter to the company and I said, you know, I really think that it's unfair that you aren't making dolls that look like me or my friends. I really think that you should make dolls that look like us. You know, this would have been the 1982. 
1981-82. So here I was like writing to this toy company saying, hey, you know, we need to have dolls that look like us, that represent us. Um, not everybody in the world is blonde and blue-eyed and white. So if I was doing that at seven, eight years old, it was already an indicator that I was oriented to see what was just or inequitable in the world and that I was going to raise my voice, that I was going to speak to it. So my mom would tell me stories of like all these things I would do as a kid so that now when she sees me in the world, not only the vocation that I have, but the way I operate in relationships and family and stuff, I I tend to always be looking out for those that are um, not being treated fairly. So it's supposed to help you with your strengths and weaknesses. So has it changed the way that you go about your activism, for example? Oh, it's changed the way that I go about my relationships, my activism, my parenting, like everything, because the type that you are, you kind of operate and communicate from that space. Like, for example, if you're a one and it's the need to be right or the perfectionist or the reformer, you know, and so you have a certain way you like things to happen in a home and all of a sudden you have, you know, a handful of small children and they're not operating in the same order that you'd prefer and so you're you're having to realize like what is it that I want to do here as a parent like do I want to focus on order or do I want to reform them or do I want them to know they're loved you know and so I think it impacts all of what we do when we see ourselves it's like again you see yourself in that mirror you go oh my gosh I do talk like that oh my I do say that I do operate that way so it's not only for your vocation I think it's for your social and emotional experiences of knowing like I am For example, if you're an Enneagram 4 and you're the need to be unique or distinct, you know, and then you're trying to show people, oh, this is what I'm creating and many artists are Enneagram 4. So look at what I made and you often will feel rejected if they don't like it or if they don't comment a certain way to know like, oh, I'm looking for something very specific. I want to be, for people to see my distinctiveness. There's a lot of, I think, identity issues that happen for us as we as we get older, we realize this isn't a good or a bad thing. It just is the way that I am and it can be good or bad. So for example, I think that being a challenger is good. You know, in our context, you know, we look at historical figures like Martin Luther King Jr. or um, Mother Teresa. They were both Enneagram 8s. They looked out for those on the marginalized. They, They spoke truth to power. They took risks in what they would say because they were looking out for those for whom power would be abused or lorded over them in some way. And so I think that's great to be like that. But if you don't keep that kind of energy of againstness in place, then you end up being like Fidel Castro or some other dictator, you know, who who is utilizing power to control others because they're afraid to be controlled. So I think it could be a good thing or a bad thing. So I think it has implications for not only what you do, but it has implications for how you live when you begin to understand, like, I I do that. Like, if you're an Enneagram 5 and you tend to, like, protect or hoard your energy because you're you're afraid to lose energy too quickly, so you'll put a lot of boundaries around your relationship so that people can't get too close because it's too much, too energetic, and you're, you're afraid to run out of, you know, capacity. And so... I think there are lots of things that we do in our personalities that have implications for how we live. This 
life and faith and it's time to hear the results of the Enneagram. I'm looking forward to this bit. We're going to hear from you, Justine, Natasha and Al. Al, I think you've come in. I'm going to tell everyone now. I'm sure no one cares, but I am a nine. That's the peacemaker as well as a six, the skeptic. I think we share that, Al. We do. How did you feel about that when when you heard this? (laughs) I'm quite comfortable with who I am, Simon, and (laughs) can't think of a better person to match with. Oh, that's lovely. Thank you, Al. And Justine, tell us. Yes. Give us the reveal. Technically, I'm a one. That's where I scored the highest. But my three and nine is also very well represented. And when I read the descriptions, yes, I do kind of identify with the one, but the three was really like I felt drawn to that description. So check this out. Threes grew up uncertain about their value and learned that performance and success earned them love and praise. We've heard this before. Which is basically <laughs> achievement addiction, right? Threes grow up to write books about being threes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Both one and threes are really goal-driven. Does this sound familiar, Natasha? <laughs> Idealistic, I suppose, although ones are probably more hardcore than threes. When I saw that the threes can be quite pragmatic, I really latched onto that because I am very pragmatic. I'm willing to sacrifice my higher principles to just get it done because, no, this sounds terrible, but I'm like, no, it's a skill. <laughs> it's actually a strength. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to sacrifice my high principles, but I'm, I'm willing to go, okay, What's the second best option here? Let's make it happen. So you're willing to compromise. Willing to compromise. And I think this is really the difference between myself and Natasha. And I say that with all love and respect. (laughs) Well, let's hear it. What about you, Natasha? Yeah, so I've also come out very strongly as a one, um, which is, you know, the perfectionist or the reformer. I came in, you know, a bit high on the three, the kind of achiever. But yes, I'm very strongly identified with the language used of the ones. Ones are defined by their belief that everything must be in order Mm -hmm. and by their feeling that they must always be right. (laughs) You all laugh. None of us can relate to that. (laughs) Um, Apparently, Simon, ones are the poster children of the working world. Conscientious, reasonable, logical, self-disciplined, hardworking and meticulous. So you're you're lucky to have Justine and I. Good to have you both on board. (laughs) Thank goodness for that. But what about nines, Al? Tell us some of the famous people that... And nines as well that share our number. Yeah, well, I noticed there was quite a few presidents. Mm-hmm. So, you know, oh, high achieving no. people, Barack yeah, Obama, yeah. Ronald Reagan, Abe Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but Morgan Freeman is a nine, and who doesn't love Morgan Freeman, right? Mm. And Woody Harrelson. Well, Meryl Woody Streep Harrelson. is a one. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, Brene Brown, <laughs> I'm sure, is a one. Yes, yeah, she is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But just, I'm sure that we're not meant to actually, this is not the point of the whole thing, is it? But what, <laughs> what did it sort of say to you as you did? Was there anything you thought, okay, this is actually pretty interesting? What I found really quite interesting was the way that the ones and the threes approach emotions. Like the ones apparently are happy to suppress their feelings so they can get stuff done. The threes, on the other hand, may even be detached from their feelings. I look at that and I'm like, oh, this is the dark side. This is why I feel sometimes, am I a sociopath? (laughs) 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 Like that time. No, seriously. Like the other day I had a real, like I was not handling bedtime very well. And I very calmly and coolly ripped up my kids' treasures on earth. They're Pokemon cards, like four of them. (gasps) And I felt... Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so I broke that down with my this husband is later. Terrifying. Wow. Anyway, so I don't know if you can blame being a three no. on that, mm. but 
I'm going to try. We'll try put it to that. <laughs> and Natasha, you, what most spoke to you in, in this exercise? It did tell me a lot about myself, some of which I knew and some of which I'm like, okay, I can connect those dots about being critical of others, but sensitive to criticism and, you know, critical of yourself as well. And it encouraged me to um, look for the silliness in myself and the world around me. So, you know, I'll try and take that on board. And also to see the imperfect and develop an appreciation for the good enough over the perfect. But this piece of advice from it horrified me. It says, make small mistakes on purpose and notice how inconsequential they are (laughs) in the grand scheme of things, move on. And I was like, that idea is appalling to me. I will not do that. (laughs) That feels like good advice for a writer or people in the sort of business we're in, but not for an A380 pilot. True. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Pick which small mistakes <laughs> you make. <laughs> and yeah, just, just so people know, the, the nines, Al and I are mm. known as peacemakers, calm, pretty relaxed, but according to this, deep down they have wells of rage that will <laughs> occasionally emerge and surprise everyone when they do. So you know, look out for that. Has that ever happened in the past? Can I just ask? Not to my knowledge. This of, is where we have to consult the, the intimate others. Yes. <laughs> yeah. At my falling down moments. <laughs> oh, falling down, of course, being that Sorry. legendary Michael Douglas, Douglas, Douglas movie, movie where the white man loses it. It was <laughs> on a rampage. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite he was that. definitely a nine, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So, look, it sounds like this has already become a worthwhile exercise for all of us. Uh, but let's get back to Sandra Van Opstel, who's found the Enneagram useful over the years rather than just a couple of hours or days. Personality types, there's a lot of debate about these and how scientific they are and are not. And personality is certainly at least partly culturally constructed, um, which will also mean ethnically specific. Have you found some would say that the Enneagram is kind of for white people? What's been your experience of this from a race point of view? Yes. So anything that's a self-assessment tool, you have to be asking those questions about. So I think, for example, personality tests, strengths, finders, Enneagram, they're only good in as much as they help you understand yourself and those around you. So they're not good for putting people in boxes, labeling people, you know, assuming and projecting onto people what their motivation is, because only you know what your motivation is. (laughs) Um, But they're helpful in as much as it helps you understand why you might operate the way that you do in the world. And the Enneagram can't be a white tool because it didn't come from Europe. It didn't come from America. It came from the Near East. And it came, actually, the modern resurgence of the Enneagram came through Chile. It came through Latin America. And so Claudio Naranjo and others um, kind of rediscovered it in the early 1970s. It just was popularized, like many things. Like, think about any leadership books or things that are out there that become bestsellers or popularized. They typically come from the U.S., Canada, Europe, Australia, you know, Western nations. And so it, I think just because... The voices that are giving voice to this tool are from those spaces doesn't mean that the tool is from that space. And I think that absolutely culture has to do with how we do. So again, like if you're an Enneagram 4 and you want to shine in your distinctiveness, but you come from a collective culture, so that's basically most of the majority world, then it's very, very hard to figure out what it looks like to be an Enneagram 4 in that context 
uh, without being seen as someone who's calling too much attention to themselves or individualizing too much, you know? Um, if you are an Enneagram 8, for example, and you're in a culture that is conflict avoidant and you're consistently challenging, you know, then you're going to have problems within that culture because you're wired a particular way and the culture itself is not wired that way. And so you're going to be acting in a way that is countercultural within that experience. But the Enneagram right now in its modern form, all the books, all the podcasts and the websites and the tools, absolutely, Enneagram so white <laughs> because it's only people from those contexts. And it's not just that's upwardly mobile, affluent, educated white folks who are writing to it. And they are writing from their own location, but they're speaking about it as if it's the same journey for all of us. And it's just not. So I think many of us have tried to say, hey, this is what it looks like in our context. So what does that look like for you to kind of inflect that as a woman, not a man, as a Latina woman um, with your background particularly? Yeah, you know, it's interesting you say that because this, uh, <laughs> this mentor of mine once told me, you know, if I had to list for you all the Enneagram 8s in our organization who are men, you would realize that they're all at the top of our organization. Because someone who is confident and who challenges and who questions and is a man is seen to be an assertive, bold, confident leader. But if it's a woman, they're seen to be aggressive, emotional, and so they're typically, they really struggle. And so she said, if you're an Enneagram 1, if you're an Enneagram 8, if you're an Enneagram 3, kind of the external leader types, and you're a woman in this institution, it's a really hard road because it's not the social expectation from women. And so that it's experienced differently. And especially as a Latina, so I come from a culture that is a, a high intuition, high feeling culture. It doesn't mean there are no thinkers. It means that expression and organizing thought and actually making decisions based off of relationships is incredibly important because loyalty is important and family is important. So you may make a decision that doesn't offer as much financial gain, but it's the best thing for the relationships as a whole. So because of that, being within that culture, oftentimes I will exercise my leadership a certain way, express myself a certain way, prioritize people over task a certain way and be penalized for that because it's not the way that we do it in the U.S. We definitely prioritize profit over people, tasks over relationships, and the bottom line um, over what it does to the community. That's the American way. That's the business way. It doesn't matter if it's in a church, in academics, it, it doesn't matter. And so for me to have come out of a different culture with a Colombian mom and an Argentine dad reflecting on the priorities of my own of how things are made in my own nation, I can say like, that was wrong. You know, that was absolutely wrong. And so how do we change that? And how do we challenge that? And it, that has gotten me into a lot of trouble in certain spaces. <laughs> so has Enneagram helped you to navigate those spaces then in a way that instead of just getting in trouble, you can kind of be effective as a leader and as an advocate? Yeah, so I think whenever you're trying to reform something, so if you're an Enneagram 1 or you're trying to challenge something as an Enneagram 8, I think there's always going to be people that don't want to hear what you have to say because there are people that benefit from the status quo. So in our country, for example, in the U.S. right now, a Latina woman makes 55 cents to every dollar a white man makes. And it will take something like 
180 years or something, some, something ridiculous for Latino women to make dollar for dollar what a white man makes. Okay, that's wrong. So I can speak to that. Now, I can speak to it in a way that says, hey, this is a systemic issue that has been caused by generations of policies and laws and preferences that we've enacted that have created a system like this that has benefited people like my husband, for example, white men in the US, and I am impacted by those systems as well. So what does it look like for us to work together to change that wrong system? Another way of going about it would be to just be angry at people like my husband because they make a dollar, or in his case, maybe a dollar 10, for every 55 cents I make, you know? And so I think a lot of times people personalize the issues and what we can do is to remember and humanize the people and the relationships that are within that system. And I think that my process with the Enneagram under coaching and under spiritual direction has helped me say like, okay, there's something happening and I'm either going to pull out like emotionally pull out like a semi-automatic weapon and just like shoot everyone down with my words and my wisdom and my knowledge and my quotes, you know, and my data, or I'm going to extend it in my hands and invite people in to an embrace that comes with truth. And so what do I want to do right now? Because I feel like pulling out a weapon. That's what I feel like doing. That's how angry I am. That's where my passion is leading me. So how can I learn to stop count to 10 as my mom would say sandrita count to 10 okay 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 count yeah. to 10 not react out of the gut space which is what enneagram one nines and eights do take a breath ask myself where is the human being in this situation and then operate still in truth but with kindness even if what i'm saying doesn't feel kind to them so are those the kinds of things, you know, you have these 40 daily reflections for eights. What kinds of things do they take people through, help people with? So they're just stories. They're just a bunch of stories about things that I've done wrong. Like one of the chapters is called Don't Waste Time. And it's all about how folks that are Enneagram eights, we like to be like intentional and purposeful with every moment of our day. And so sometimes we don't, we forget to rest. We forget to take care of our body. We forget to like breathe sometimes. I can be working out and actually forget to breathe uh, because everything is intensity. So I think the word describing that position is intensity. So each of these Enneagram devotionals has for their number stories that probably people within that number or people that are in friendships or partnerships with people from within that number would understand. And so there are things in here that really address the, the complexity of being within that type. And each of the 40 days on being and then the number has with it these just stories and sometimes scripture sometimes poetry that help us to just reflect on ourselves and then ends typically with a practice or with a a question so one of my practices for one of my devotionals just says eat and drink slowly for one of your meals this week and pay attention to the effect it has on you because my particular type, I can eat a meal in six minutes. And it only got faster when I had kids because, you know, you don't have that much time to eat. <laughs> so I don't like sit and relax and enjoy a meal. I just like eat it because it's fuel and I keep going. Mm. So it, it really is a devotional that invites you to slow down and reflect and to take in why we do what we do as people and 
how we might consider some changes to become more healthy and more whole. You've called the Enneagram a spiritual pilgrimage. How so? So for me, the Enneagram's main focus, as I understand it, is to help us understand our motivations, like what's happening on the inside. And so for me, coming from my faith background, I'm asking the question, how am I created? How did creator create me? Why did I have this experience, including things that happened to us in in our childhood, ways that were formed by our families that shape us to be a particular way and to understand why we're wired that way on the inside. That's a deeply spiritual thing. I mean, to ask yourself, who am I and why do I do what I do? They're questions of intention, questions of identity, way beyond any label someone could put on us is the question of who are we and why were we created this way? And there's so much in the world that seeks to um, yeah, label us, penalize us. And in, in my own case, as a person of color who grew up as an immigrant, a child of an immigrant in a very unfriendly to immigrants situation, I never grew up feeling like I was good enough or like I was right. I always felt very othered. So if you're someone has, who has felt othered for some reason, um, social, economic, racial, then this question of who am I and is who I am good is a deeply spiritual question. So I think the Enneagram helps you understand who you are and why you were created the way you were and gives you the confidence to say that who you are is that way on purpose and that you're not wrong or other, you're just distinctly you. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart, as well as Natasha Moore, Justine Toe, and Alan Douthwaite, who's usually behind the scenes as our producer, but we do love getting him in front of the mic when we can talk him into it. Thanks to Sandra Van Opstel for telling us about her experience of being an eight on the Enneagram. Her book, 40 Days on Being an Eight, as well as 40 Days on Being All the Other Numbers, are available from IVP. And a shout out as well here to our transcription service, which to our amusement rendered Enneagram as variously Anagram, Instagram, Enneground, Indiagram, and Angiogram. Well, that was a valiant effort from the software. Next week. There's been quite a rise of post-traumatic stress disorder and what some are calling moral injury from operational service. And I have found, for me, the Christian faith has provided a means by which some of those injuries, those moral wounds, can be healed. And that's an amazing message for people that are carrying such burdens.